Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 15. If you're new here, what we're doing is finishing a, a long sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, coming here now to the last few weeks, and we're picking up in the verse we left off, Keith left off last week. Uh, as you turn there, those of you who watch the news from time to time always hear the, 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 the shocking reports of sometimes what Mexican cartels do. Uh, when they execute their enemies, their opponents. It's not just an execution to get rid of an enemy, but it's the way they do it through excessive violence and gruesomeness that is the reason why it's on the news. I mean, people get killed all the time, but the reason why these reports always make the news is because they kind of always shockingly push the envelope in a whole new level of gruesomeness, a whole new level of shock, a whole new level of excessive violence, and the, per, the point is to send a message. I mean, in some sense, the news report is the, is the, is the point. They want to send a message. To resist us is a horrifying thing. Do not resist us, or you too will experience the horror of what you see here. That's the message. And so, too, the Romans, 2,000 years ago, when they occupied foreign lands... Roman Empire was huge, and they occupied foreign lands, and they too wanted to send a message like that with crucifixion. In the trendy art and jewelry of our day today, the cross has kind of become a fashion symbol, but it's funny that it is when you understand what the cross was as the Romans used it 2,000 years ago. Crucifixion was a grisly form of death infamous for a prolonged death of excessive pain and cruelty and shame on its victims. The horror of the cross, the horror of a death by crucifixion, was the point. It was intended to send a message. In fact, Marcus Fabius Quintilian, a Roman rhetorician back in those days and counselor to emperors at the time of the New Testament, he wrote this about crucifixion. He says, whenever we crucify the guilty... The most crowded roads are chosen, where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. That was why they crucified, instead of just killing somebody. And that's why the Romans' favorite form of public execution on non-Roman citizens was crucifixion. It was meant to send a message. To resist us is a horrifying thing. But by the gruesome, excessive violence of crucifixion, God, too, wanted to send a message. And we see that kind of message, that kind of picture here in Mark chapter 15 in the crucifixion of Jesus. If Jesus' death was for our sins, then it is a picture of the cruelty and pain and evil of our own sin that required such a death by Jesus in our place. But it's a message much more than that. That would be a pretty dis uh, dis discouraging, depressing message if that's all it was. It's a message also at the same time, it's a picture of the excessive measure of God's own love for us, even in our sin. And here's the question. Have you gotten the message? When you think of Christianity, when you think of your faith, when you approach God, have you gotten the message that was intended to be sent to you by the crucifixion of Jesus? 
Let's look at the story. It's a picture as the, try to, uh, as we read this, it's going to be verses 15 through 39. So kind of a long section, and then we'll talk about it. But try to picture the events as described here by Mark. And again, as we said here, Mark was a traveling companion of Peter the Apostle, and so a lot of these accounts are from Peter's memory. And so we pick up in verse 15, the verse Keith left off at last week. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate, he's the Roman prefect and governor over, placed there by the emperor to oversee the Judea. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged. Now in that one little word there is a whole ordeal. The whip that was used had nine called the cat of nine tails. It had nine whips to it that had bone and metal all through it, and it would just rip out flesh. But it just as mentioned here is just flogged and handed him over to be crucified. What Mark does is he minimizes all these things and sort of just describes what is rather than goes into some sort of sentimental detail. Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace. That is the praetorium. Mark's clarifying things for his readers, original readers in Rome and called together the whole company of soldiers. So here you have soldiers calling together, and there's about 600 soldiers here in the praetorium, calling together the whole company of soldiers. Now, how many were there, we don't know, but the whole company was called. Now, you know, peacekeeping, occupying forces, depending upon your perspective, which have become sort of a regular feature in our world, can easily build up an emotional backlog of resentment and anger against the people that they are occupying, people who are causing them trouble, even trouble to the extent of perhaps killing or wounding some of their fellow soldiers. We hear tales today of soldiers who have, when they have an insurgent prisoner all to themselves, they seize the opportunity to take revenge with brutal and sadistic torture. And it's, it's a scene like that here in Mark chapter 15. Jerusalem was a tough place for a Roman soldier to be deployed. It was not a submissive crowd. And so there is a lot of pent-up anger and hatred toward Jewish insurgency. And so when Pilate hands Jesus over to the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem to be crucified, well, what starts off with simple mockery then quickly moves to violence and cruelty. And their excessive abuse of Jesus is probably not personal. They probably didn't hate Jesus because he taught religious things as much as just because he is a Jew. And on top of that, one who's charged as being the king of the Jews. And so this is what they've always wanted to do to a, quote, king of the Jews. And so verse 17, they put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, obviously, ironic homage. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, not Keith, but this is a guy that lived 2,000 years ago, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, probably there on pilgrimage. This is the Passover weekend, don't forget. Lots of pilgrims. 
and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, see, prisoners were forced to carry their own cross beam. It's not really a cross like you think of a cross. It's a cross beam that they carried out there, and already on site was the, the vertical pole that the cross beam would be attached to. And if you've been reading the story and paying attention to the timeline, this is Friday morning this is happening. It was Thursday night that Jesus had the Passover meal with his disciples and then went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and then was arrested and has been tried overnight, has been beaten already quite a bit. So Jesus has had an incredibly long night, and after a sleepless night and repeated beatings, he can't carry the crossbeam. And so a random guy, just a man in the crowd, happened to be passing by from the country, is commandeered by soldiers and compelled to carry the crossbeam of Jesus instead of Jesus carrying it. So verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, and Mark says, which means the place of the skull, had a reputation of being a place of death and execution. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not, not take it. That's kind of a... Uh, something to deaden the pain. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. May or may not know that people were in fact crucified naked as a final public shame and degradation. Jesus was crucified naked. They divided up his clothes. Verse 25, it was nine in the morning. Now Mark is providing a detailed timeline here. Again, this is 9 in the morning. Jesus was eating the Passover just the night before, and all that's been happening overnight. It was 9 in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Pilate meant this, of course, to be some ironic mocking of Jesus. This is ironic, the king of the Jews who's being crucified. Of course, the irony is he really is the king of the Jews, and this really is how he's bringing about his eternal kingdom. That's the double irony, I suppose. Verse 27, they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by, remember, they crucified people on a busiest road they can find to get the most viewers they can find. That's the point. It's to send a message. That's the case here. So lots of people are passing by, and those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so... You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. They're still ticked off about Jesus overturning stuff in the temple. That's still on people's minds. It just happened a few days ago. This is that same week. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, which is interesting that they're conceding that he healed others. Saved others in their mockery. That's interesting. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now Luke tells us that one of them repented and started saying, believing things to Jesus eventually, because they're on the cross a long time. Verse 33, at noon... Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So providing specific times here. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. 
Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the Son of God. He had been observing there the whole time. See, a centurion is a Roman officer in charge of a hundred men. And no doubt this centurion had participated in, had observed the death of many, many crucified criminals. He was probably aware of Jesus' claim of being the Messiah and the Son of God before Caiaphas. So in Jesus' death on the cross, a hardened Roman centurion in charge of Jesus' execution stands before the dying Jesus and becomes the first sane human being in Mark's gospel to call Jesus the Son of God and mean it. And when you start to make the connection with the truth that all this really happened just as described here, When you start to make that connection, you start to realize the same truth. Surely this man is the Son of God. See, everything we've read this morning in Mark 15 is, on one level, ordinary history. It's history in the the same sense in which the reign of Tiberius during Jesus' life was history, or the high priesthood of Caiaphas is history. It's history in the sense that it is what happened. These events happened at a specific place on earth at a specific time in history. We're even given times, 9 o'clock, noon, 3 o'clock. Had you been there, you would have seen the events unfold just as described here. And there are all these little signs of the authenticity of this historical account. Signs that we're reading something that really happened. Here's a couple. Notice the Simon of Cyrene. Verse 21. A certain man, this random guy, from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, it's interesting that this guy, this certain man, this Simon from Cyrene, is specifically named. What's interesting is that as you read through the Gospel of Mark, one of the peculiarities about Mark is that he really hardly ever names names. Now, he did name Jairus back in chapter 5, verse 22, and you can listen to that sermon we discussed the unusualness that he named somebody there and why he, why he names him. But he didn't even name Caiaphas the high priest. The only reason why we know his name's Caiaphas was from the other gospel accounts. He doesn't really name anybody. He does name Pilate. But, but, but why this random guy? I mean, of all people to name, when you're not even mentioning the name of the high priest who's condemning Jesus to death, but you, remember, you name some guy walking by, why tell us his name? And not just his name, why tell us where he's from? But Mark didn't just tell us that. He goes on to include the names of his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Now things are going crazy for Mark. He's not only naming some guy walking by, he's naming his two sons and where he's from. Why does he do that? Now the names as you read them are presented as though Simon is unknown to Mark's 
first readers, but that Alexander and Rufus are known to them. Of Alexander, we, we know nothing further. There's nothing in history that we know. But we do know that a Rufus was a member of the ancient church in Rome in the mid-50s A.D. Now, as we've said, most Bible scholars believe that Mark wrote this gospel account to the believers in Rome in the late 50s, early 60s A.D. And we have an interesting little remark. If we look at the rest of the New Testament, there's an interesting little remark by the Apostle Paul at the end of his letter to the Christians in Rome, written about the exact same time of, of uh, this, this gospel of Mark. He says this in Romans 16, 13, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Now all the Bible scholars that I've read believe that he is the same Rufus that's the son of Simon of Cyrene here. And, and apparently Rufus's mother had been significantly caring for Paul for a very long time. Now remember, when we're reading this greeting by Paul to the Christians in Rome, talking about this Rufus and the mother, this would have been some 25 years after Simon of Cyrene carried the cross. Be like 1988 is to now. Probably a long enough time for Simon to no longer be alive. But his kids are, and his wife still is. And his wife seems to be caring for Paul in an unusual way. See, it's likely that this family became believers in Christ, even though in Rome, because dad had taken such a shocking part in Jesus' crucifixion. See, God had a bigger plan for this certain Simon of Cyrene who had just happened to be passing by at that moment. And maybe that's why the Apostle Paul specifically says, emphasizing that Rufus was chosen in the Lord. The point is that Mark's first readers in Rome were given the names of real people they knew that shared in this account. Real people because this really happened. We also notice something else that shows us this is something that really happened. Another detail. When Mark mentions what Jesus says from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Verse 34, and at three in the afternoon. Notice that's the that's three in the afternoon, specific time, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. See, Jesus' native language was Aramaic. It's a very close cousin to Hebrew, the Semitic language. Jesus and the apostles and the people of Palestine in his day spoke Aramaic. What we're reading when we read the Gospels is a translation that was first translated into Greek. That's the language the Gospels were originally written in. And then now we take the Greek and translate it into English. So this original Aramaic quotation, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, was Jesus' actual words. And then Mark follows with a Greek translation for the benefit of Gentile readers that we again have in English. But why does Mark even give us the Aramaic first? I mean, everything Jesus said, he said in Aramaic. So, so why not just translate Jesus' words like Mark did with everything else Jesus ever said? Why not just say, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why leave the Aramaic? 
The answer is because the bizarre misunderstanding of the people thinking that he was calling Elijah. See, Eloi, Eloi sounds like phonetically Elijah to someone with dull ears. He had to leave the Aramaic so we could understand the reason for the people's misunderstanding of what he said. But why even mention all that unless Mark is simply telling us what happened? And it's another sign that this really happened. We're reading history. So, when you start to make that connection, when you start to make the connection with the historical reality of Jesus' sacrificial death as the Son of God, that this really happened, you start to make another connection. You start to make the life-changing connection with all that that really means for your life. See, we need to notice that there are also some very unusual things that happened, like the darkness. Verse 33, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. That's for three hours in the middle of the day. Between noon and three in the afternoon, there's darkness. Now, this was not a solar eclipse because the Passover always took place on a full moon. A full moon is, perspective-wise for us, on the wrong side. The sun is shining on the moon rather than the moon blocking the sun. It's on the wrong side of the earth. <laughs> so it can't be a total eclipse. But in the Bible, darkness, in the middle of the day, darkness during the day is recognized as a sign of God's judgment. The supreme example of this is back in Exodus at the time of the first Passover when darkness came over Egypt that was one of the plagues of judgment of God against Egypt and Pharaoh. So when this darkness, a lot like the darkness in Exodus chapter 10, when this darkness fell from noon to 3 p.m., we know that God was acting in judgment as Jesus hung on the cross. This is an epic judgment of God. But whom was God judging? See, notice the very next verse. At the same time, it says, verse 34, and at three in the afternoon. Remember, this darkness went from noon to three. At three in the afternoon, same time, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, on the cross, Jesus was being forsaken by, judged by God the Father. God the Son, Jesus, was being forsaken by, judged by God the Father. Stuff here we can't quite get our, our minds around. I get it. But this forsakenness, this loss of intimacy replaced by judgment, was between the Father and the Son who had, because they are forever God, they had loved each other from all eternity. This love was infinitely long, eternity past. It was absolutely perfect, and now Jesus was losing it and experiencing judgment and separation instead. Why? Because Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not a rhetorical question. It was really happening. 
And Jesus was crying out in the agony, the emotional agony of experiencing it. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should have fallen on us fell instead on Jesus. The darkness, the dark cloud of evil, my evil, your evil, the world's evil, evil itself overshadowed him and cut him off from the Father in a way that he had never known before. He was losing the infinite love of his Father out of his infinite love for you. Taking all your darkness upon himself so that the Father will never have to forsake you. Have you made that connection? If this really happened... This history, have you made that connection about God and you? Notice one more unusual thing that we're told happened. It's in verse 38. It says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. See, this curtain separated in the temple according to the design that was laid out in the Old Testament. They built it according to God's specifications. This curtain in the temple separated a room that was called the Holy of Holies from all the rest of the temple. The Holy of Holies was where God's holy, unapproachable glory dwelled. From, that was separated from the rest of the temple by this curtain. In other words, it separated the people from the presence of God. And this curtain in the temple was incredibly large, incredibly heavy, and thick, almost as substantial as a wall. And remember that only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and he could only do it once a year on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, and he had to bring a blood sacrifice with him as an atonement for sin. Only be entered once a year by the high priest as he brings in a a blood sacrifice for the atonement for sin. And the curtain said loudly and clearly that it is impossible for anyone sinful, anyone in spiritual darkness, to come into God's holy, glorious presence. Now catch this. At the moment Jesus Christ died, this massive curtain was ripped open. And notice that the tear was from the top, to the bottom, just to make clear who did it. What an unusual thing to have happened. This massive curtain tore open from top to bottom. This was God's way of saying, this is the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. Now the way is open to approach me. Now that Jesus has been sacrificed, anybody can now directly connect to God through faith. The barrier is gone for good. And that's only possible because Jesus just paid the price for our sin. Anybody, anybody who believes in Jesus as Savior and Lord can go directly into God's holy, glorious presence now. That's the gospel. But this means that Jesus Christ not only died the death that we should have died because of our sin, he also lived the life that we should have lived but can't. His perfect obedience is now in our place, becomes our perfect obedience. It doesn't matter who you are. God himself has ripped the curtain from top to bottom for you. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, 
my guess is very little of this is all that new to you. I'm not asking you. Have you heard this before? Because my guess is if you're a Christian, of course you've heard this before. Here's what I'm asking you. Have you made the connection between what really happened and what it means for you? Here's the question. Does God abandon you? Does God forsake you when you sin? When you're aware of your sinfulness, where is your heart toward God? How much do you feel like approaching God? Or do you feel like just ignoring God? Do you feel like you're not able to come to God right now in prayer? That somehow you have to clean yourself up first before you can come to God confidently in prayer. We all feel that way. And when we do, it's because we're not making the connection. Here's the answer you should always remember, because Jesus' crucifixion is God sending you a message after all. Does God abandon you? Does God forsake you when you sin? Because this really happened. Everything we read in Mark chapter 15, well, Romans 5.8 is true. But it says God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you feel that you can't approach God because you're aware of your sin, remember, while you were still sinner, Christ died for you. He's wanting to send you a message. Even in your sin. Mark 15 is a picture of the excessive measure of God's love for us even in our sin. we got to catch that. we got to make that connection. Because this really happened, the Apostle Paul writes this amazing truth. We looked at it during the worship service. It's our memory verse this week, 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You can trust it and you can fully believe it, accept it that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, Paul says. Have you made the connection between what really happened and what it means for you and your relationship with God? Because this really happened. It says in Hebrews chapter 19, Chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, because this really happened, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by our own righteousness. Oh, no, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I didn't read that right. Since we have confidence to enter the holy of holies by, we go to the best church in town, wherever church that might be. That's not what I read. It's this, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place because we pray a lot. No. Because we read our Bible every day. No. Because we don't sin. That's it, right? No. Since we have confidence to enter what was never able to be entered, the holy glorious presence of God by the blood of Jesus. I don't know what you think you're carrying into that room whenever you approach God, but it's only the blood of Jesus that gets you in. 
It's not how much you give. It's not your obedient deeds. It's not your ministry success. It's the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. That is, not the curtain in the temple anymore, but his body. Blood. And since we have a great priest, not Caiaphas, thank God, but Jesus over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, not having to hide anything. But we draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, trust, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Do you have a guilty conscience that keeps you from coming to God? having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for if you try hard enough, you'll be faithful. I love that. If you try hard enough, you'll be faithful. What a promise in Scripture that I cling to every day. No, that's not what it says. For he who promised is faithful. See, when you start to make the connection, don't separate reality from reality. When you start to make the connection with the historical reality of Jesus' sacrificial death, it happened just like we read here in Mark 15. That this really happened. When you make that connection, you start to make the other connection. The life-changing connection that you really can trust Jesus with your life. You really can draw near with confidence. So as the worship team comes back up. What I want to do is to have us bow our heads. And I want us to reflect on this. And I'm going to guide our reflection. Would you bow your head with me? Because this really happened. There's only one faithful person that gets us in. He who promised is faithful. So draw near to God by a living way, not some dead way that doesn't work. Not trying harder and harder until you feel like you can be clean. Not making deals with God, I'll do this if you do that. Let us draw near to God by a living way open for you through Jesus' sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the last sacrifice. He's your perfect high priest. Just believe and draw near to God. What's keeping you from drawing near to God? Just believe the promise. Connect with what really happened. Draw near to God, having your heart sprinkled to cleanse you from a guilty conscience. What is that right now? that makes you feel unworthy to come to God, makes you feel unclean to pray. A living way means you can start fresh right now. Right now is a brand new start. The slate is wiped clean. You get to start over right now. Right now. Right now. Oh. Right now. My heart cleansed from a guilty conscience, my body washed with pure 
water from heaven. Will you draw near to God? Confidence and trust in the one who's faithful. Amen.